Well, it is a joy to be in God's word with you again this morning, and we're back into this series on spiritual friendship and catalytic Christian community. Catalytic just is, means something that gets you where you're going faster. A catalyst in a chemical reaction gets you where you're going faster. And we started this series with the image of a bottle of sriracha, of hot sauce, Because I contend that spiritual friendship, this sort of intimate, learning, growing community, is the special sauce. It's the secret sauce of the Christian life. It's an essential ingredient that brings joy to the journey that empowers us to pursue Jesus in deeper and greater ways and And so far to explore this, we began by looking at the epic bromance of of David and Jonathan, those two kindred spirits in the Old Testament who were united by this shared heartbeat of courage and trust in the Lord. There were these two brothers who were there for one another during life's triumphs and tragedies. And I know for some, this was a very encouraging examination, but for others that caused a pang of sadness because that sort of friendship has not been your experience. You were forced to acknowledge that you've never had a close spiritual friend like this, someone who just really knows you and gets you, someone who's you could go to with any problem and know that they would not turn you away. Someone in whom there's just mutual delight for you to be in one another's presence, in one another's company. And last week we discovered that such connection and community is only possible because of God's grace. The spiritual family that we're a part of, it's born in grace, it endures in grace, and we have this opportunity to be channels of God's grace to the world because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. He's taken down. We've heard that dividing wall of hostility that separates us from God, but he's also taken down the dividing wall of hostility that separates us from one another. Because of what he's done, we have this opportunity to be reconciled, to be united. Because he's forgiven, he's covered, he's paid the debts that have been incurred by our many sins and harms. So now we can be restored, we can be bound to one another. Companions and partners in God's kingdom, despite our flaws and our failings, because... We're together in the grace and love of the Lord. And today we're going to look at another snapshot of spiritual friendship, of this sort of catalytic community in Scripture. And I really think, though, that Scripture doesn't give us like a photograph of what it looks like. It's more like a mosaic. We get all of these little beautiful, small, incomplete pictures, and they all form together to be this bigger display of what God has called us to. And each time we dive into one of these connections, one of these friendships, we see some of the same elements. We see that shared heartbeat. We see that intimacy, the devotion, the partnership, the appreciative love 
Um, but the context and the character of these different sacred friendships can vary significantly. And I really think that the friendship we're going to look at today is it's different from David and Jonathan's because it reveals what I see as some of the weightiness, maybe the, the costliness of such holy community. And again, as we dive in, it's my hope that these stories will inspire your imagination, that they'll speak to your experience, uh, that they'll spark in you a desire for more. May God use these biblical pictures to train us in the art and the calling of Christian community. So we're going to dive in, and I want to um, introduce you to our two friends, our two members of of spiritual family together. Uh, And this is a different sort of uh, connection. This is a cross-gender friendship. It's a platonic bond between a man and a woman. Uh, Second, it is cross-generational. While kind of David and Jonathan were peers, here we're going to see a significant age difference between these friends. And then finally, these two friends have more than just friendship binding them together. They are also family. They're first cousins on their father's sides. And for me, as someone who has 26, at least, first cousins and who regularly uh, connects with one of my cousins, my cousin Kai, every two weeks for a kind of a little discipleship connection, I get really excited to see God doing a special work among cousins. So I want to introduce you this morning to Mordecai and his cousin Hadassah. And a little background, uh, Mordecai and Hadassah's friendship was forged in the experience of exile. You should remember this maybe from our journey through the book of Daniel, but their small Jewish nation of Judah was conquered by a military superpower. And war raged and the losses started to mount up and God's people were scattered across the face of the Middle East. And our two cousins, they end up 850 miles from home living in the Zagros Mountains of what is now modern-day Iran. They're in the city of Susa, which is the capital of the Persian Empire, and they've had to start life anew. And Hadassah is an orphan. She's lost both of her parents in the struggle, and, and Mordecai is her last surviving relative. He's a much older cousin on her dad's side, and And he essentially, they adopt one another. They become a new family unit that is built not just on blood, but on belief and friendship and hope. And as we catch up with them in the middle of this book, Mordecai has become, he's climbed the ranks of the Persian bureaucracy and he's become this influential government official in the administrations of the Persian king Xerxes. And Hadassah, she's this beautiful, vivacious woman. Uh, Scripture literally describes her with this way. She had a beautiful figure and she was lovely to look at. And she makes quite a splash on the social scene. 
in her day. And at her cousin's instruction, she had started going by the Persian name Esther because Mordecai was facing a lot of like anti-Semitic prejudice and he encouraged her to keep her Jewish identity a secret. But in this kind of moment of, and if you haven't read the book of Esther, I am not going to do it justice here in two minutes. Your assignment this afternoon is to read it. It is a crazy, wonderful, amazing story, and I'm not going to do it justice this morning. But it's this moment of kind of charged sexual politics. There's this vibrant debate about the, the nature and validity of consent, and Xerxes, at the beginning of the book, he deposes one of his queens, and he he launches on this empire-wide search for a new wife. And he, he basically has an empire-wide beauty contest. And Esther, kind of leveraging her attractiveness and her, her winsome personality, she wins this beauty contest. But unlike those shows, The Bachelor or whatnot, what she does not get at the end of this is not a rose or a ring. She gets a crown. She gets to become the queen of Persia. And as you read this story, we got to get to see glimpses of their friendship along the way. Every day, Mordecai will quietly come by the gate of the, the palace. He'll visit the royal harem, to check in on his cousin, to see how she's doing, and to pass her important information that might help her in her journey, that might help the king. They have this fascinating secret little partnership. But we really see their friendship when disaster strikes. Mordecai has an enemy in the Persian bureaucracy, a man named Haman. He's the royal vizier. He's like the the right hand of the king. And he hates Mordecai, and he's decided to take out his political rival by launching a bloody holocaust against all Persian Jews. And he's manipulated the king into signing this order to carry it out. And it's in this moment that we're going to pick up their story together and we're going to dive into Esther and Mordecai's friendship. So Esther chapter 4, verse 1. Haman has just issued his decree that will attack and, and launch this genocide against the Jews. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Mordecai and his fellow Jews, they're they're preemptively mourning. They're praying. They're crying out to God. They're pained at all the suffering And death that is coming for God's people. But Esther lives in this bubble. She's isolated in the palace and and she's in the dark to all that's going on. And we read in verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and, and told her 
of Mordecai's behavior, the queen was deeply distressed. The Hebrew there is literally, she writhed as if in the throes of childbirth. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. It's a weird little detail. He's weeping, gnashing his teeth, and she sends him some clothes. This is not uh, retail therapy or anything like that. She wants to speak with him, but no one can enter the palace when they're in sackcloth and ashes. You have to be at a certain level of, of attire to come into the Persian court. And so she's sending him this outfit to get him through the gates. But Mordecai refuses to end his lament. And then verse 5, Then Esther called for Hathach. I'm sure he won't mind if I butcher his name. Uh, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend to her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went out to Mordecai and in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and to beg his favor and to plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. At long last, Mordecai wants Esther to go public with her Jewish heritage and use the full weight of her position to advocate for her people, to stand in the gap for the Jews in their hour of just desperate need. And surprisingly, Esther refuses. She's no longer the little girl who will just obey him without question. She says, then Esther spoke, verse 10, to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And then Morde they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Esther actually knows how precarious her position is. Life within the Persian court is not what you might imagine. The king and queen, they don't share a bed. They don't even share a bedroom. There's no pillow talk. There's no intimate conversations over breakfast. Uh, she is very much a trophy. She's a, a, a trophy wife, right? She is this object of his status, the most beautiful woman in his kingdom. Um, and he kind of will go and see her when he wants to. He'll invite her at his pleasure, but otherwise she lives sequestered in her own quarters, not seeing anyone, just available for his pleasure at a moment's notice. 
And Xerxes hasn't wanted to see Esther for over a month. And barging in, demanding to see her husband could be seen as this kind of presumptuous breach of protocol, an offense that could lead to her banishment and death. And this isn't hypothetical. He's already banished one queen. He's kicked one woman to the curb already. Esther very well could be the next But Mordecai presses her. He speaks into her life. And we read this next part together. Verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. That's Esther and Mordecai. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther, you can't slip by unseen in the palace. You're a Jew, Hadassah. You're a member of God's people, Mordecai says, just like I am. If you're deaf to the cries of your community, if you're dumb before your husband, the king, God will still save. That's interesting. Relief and deliverance will have to stand up from another place. He has this deep faith that God won't abandon his people. He knows God's fierce devotion and his steadfast love will never fail. But, but, he says, Esther, if we insist on doing nothing, if we sit on our hands, if we refuse to partner with God in his great act of rescue, people will get hurt and there will be consequences and you and I will probably be the first victims of this holocaust. And then Mordecai has that amazing line, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. The imagery in the Hebrew is is pretty powerful. Come to the kingdom literally means to be touching the kingdom, to come in contact with the kingdom for such a time as this. It, It speaks of intentionality. It speaks of God resting Esther's hand on an object that is ready for her to shape and to manipulate and to influence. Mordecai is telling his cousin, don't you realize God placed you in this position? He orchestrated the circumstances so that your hand might be resting upon Persia. Could this be why? for you to shape and to impact this situation. This is bold. Mordecai is presuming to identify how God is working in Esther's life, to speak into why and for what purpose God has raised her up as queen. And yes, she's been this active agent in her story. She played a major role in ascending to the throne. But God 
Mordecai says, was also moving behind the scenes. He was getting Esther to the right place at the right time. And in the end, Mordecai doesn't pull rank. He doesn't issue a command. He just invites Esther to step into her calling. He's trying to activate her leadership, to unleash her gifts, her skills, her passion, and her position for the Lord's ends. And Esther receives it. This is what she says. Verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. I love that last line. If I perish, I perish. Esther's rising to the occasion in this epic fashion, and Mordecai knows it. And notice how kind of the power dynamics in their relationship flip here. Now the older Mordecai starts obeying her orders. He knows God is using her to save the Jews, and he's ready to let her drive. God has raised her up as queen for just this purpose. And Esther, like Jesus, will stand in the gap for her people. She'll put her life on the line to see her people rescued and redeemed. Hadassah is the real deal. And I'm not going to tell you how the story ends. You got to read it. It's in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles on the Welcome Center. Gift for you. I want you to see how the Lord moves. But I do want us to take a moment as we step into their story and reflect. What do these two cousins have to teach us about spiritual friendship and catalytic community? Well, I see four lessons The first is this, that spiritual friends are bold enough to speak into one another's lives. You see, there is a difference. This is one of those differences between an acquaintance and a friend. As acquaintance, I'm polite. I listen, but I wouldn't presume to speak into your life. To me, that would be like those people that um, give parenting advice in the checkout line at the grocery store. Have you ever met one of those? Maybe you haven't been there with three screaming kids, uh, but I get it a lot. (laughs) But you just don't do that because there's no trust there. There's no relationship. It's hard for anything said to be received or digested. But in the context of a spiritual friendship, we are, we're bold enough to speak. Mordecai's, Mordecai's bold enough to come to his friend with a, with a warning of destruction. Bold enough to, to come to her with this statement of confidence 
in God, bold enough to speak into her identity, bold enough to point out how God appears to be moving in her life and how God might be calling her to respond. We need that, don't we? We need friends, people of faith like this who can encourage us, who might be able to see around our blind spots. Because for me, it often takes an outside perspective to identify how God is moving in my life. And also for me, I I tend to need a little push from a friend to, to muster the courage to keep trusting God, to to keep following him into risky obedience. We all need spirit, discerning spiritual friends who can kind of be all up in our business to help us keep walking faithfully with Jesus. One of my tias, one of my aunts, likes to call it in-your-face fellowship. Um. But we're also kind of a fiery family of Latinos, so we might do, uh, do it a little bit more intense than you have to. But you might have a little quick check in your spirit because it is one thing to lovingly speak into the life of a friend. It's quite a different thing to pronounce judgment or to spew your opinions or to meddle or to mansplain. And don't forget what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. God doesn't want us just spouting off. But having a sacred friend who's bold enough to speak into your life is a gift. But I actually think the next two lessons that we see in Mordecai and Esther's friendship help kind of keep us on the straight and narrow. They help ensure that what we have to say might actually be received. And in fact, they help us make sure that what we have to share is actually something meaningful in the first place. So spiritual friends are bold enough to speak into one another's lives. They're also faithful enough to be in for the journey. In his book, and I'll do a little Vanna White here, in his book, The Good and Beautiful Life, uh, James Bryan Smith defines judging in this way. He says, judging is making a negative evaluation of others without standing in solidarity with them. It's declaring something objectionable in another person's life without coming alongside of them in a real relationship. It's using condemnation to try to change someone's behavior without any real concern of of helping them to recognize the problem or supporting them as they wrestle to discover a solution. It's kind of like lobbing hand grenades from a distance versus fighting alongside someone in the same foxhole. And God doesn't call us to judge. He calls us to love our neighbors and to forge effective spiritual friendships. He wants us to live in in union with one another. And Esther and Mordecai's friendship is so effective because they were committed to be part of each other's journeys. 
They chose to bear one another's burdens. They chose to support one another in times of need. And I love the end of this section when you get the visual of Esther and Mordecai and the whole Jewish community fasting and praying together as Esther prepares to make that plunge and approach the king. It's just this sort of kind of relational commitment that Christ calls us to. This is the faithfulness of spiritual friends. So the next time you go to say something to a friend, to give them some spiritual advice, to speak some word into your life, I want you to check yourself. Before you say anything, say, am I in for this person's journey? Am I committed to walking with them in good times and bad? Will I support them and encourage them and be there for them as they seek God's guidance on how to move forward? I think of the covenant that we speak to one another when we become members of this church. And that's essentially what we're saying. We're in on your journey and we're committing ourselves to one another. But if you're not in, maybe clam it up. Because honestly, there's sometimes we don't want this high calling of spiritual friendship. We don't want to be faithful in that way. People just annoy us. And we want them to live lives that we don't find so irritating. So for example, maybe you are kind of naturally a little bit more conservative, a little bit more prudish. And there's a a woman at the church whose outfits uh, you find to be a bit too revealing. They're showing maybe too much midriff, a little bit plunging neckline. And your solution is, well, with gentleness, I'm going to confront them. And sure, it might blow up, but they'll either change their behavior or they'll leave the church. Either way, I get to move on with my day no longer scandalized. Problem solved. Now imagine another possible solution. And that's not a hypothetical. That has happened many times at my last church. Maybe you don't set out first to change that woman's behavior. Instead, you seek to make a new friend. You hear her story. You you learn something about her faith background and what God is doing in her life. Maybe you discover and see why she's dressing the way she does. Maybe you don't. Maybe she's never thought about her presentation as part of her discipleship. But as you invest soon before you know it, God has knit your hearts together and you're encouraging one another in the ways of Jesus. And you're both being changed by the grace of God at work. See, this is the kind of transformation that God wants to see. And it comes when we're faithful enough to be part of one another's journeys. The third lesson is this. Spiritual friends are humble enough to persist in prayer for their friends, seeking God's insight and strength on their behalf. Did you notice that Mordecai doesn't just instantly run to his cousin in that moment of crisis? 
No, he first cries out to God. He mourns and prays and listens. And it's out of that time of prayer that he speaks to Esther. Have you made a new spiritual friend? Great, now start to pray for them. Pray for them every day. Pray for their needs. Pray for God's strength and presence in their lives. Pray for divine insight and the the courage to respond when God speaks. Keep praying. And let me tell you, God might actually give you something meaningful and timely and helpful to speak into their life. Right after we are challenged to not judge one another, Jesus just challenges us with these words. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. When we pray for our friends, when we invite God into the situation, we start to see them as God sees them. We feel compassion and less criticism. And prayer actually helps us accurately assess another person's situation and it shifts our heart towards their well-being. And then miraculously, by God's Spirit, the Lord might actually give us divine insight, access to His wisdom that we can share with one another. And that's what happens here with Esther and Mordecai. It's from that place of passionate, lament-filled prayer, then Mordecai is able to speak into his cousin's life. It's from that moment of prayer that God reveals how God has been moving in and through Esther, preparing her for this moment and this call. And Mordecai, he persisted in prayer. He was humble enough to say, I don't know if I have the answer, God, but I will seek your face for our community on, on behalf of my friend. And it's out of that asking, that seeking, that knocking that God responds and he can speak with boldness and humility into Esther's life. And I find this convicting because that sort of laboring in prayer for someone else, it's, it's hard. It's easier to just give advice, to, to confront, to complain But to continually lift someone up before the Lord, that is real work. And it requires me to depend not on my own resources, but to ask God to weigh in with his. But that's where power actually comes from in these spiritual friendships. We have to be humble enough to pray because God has the solution They need, not us. And then the final lesson I see in Esther and Mordecai's friendship is this. Spiritual friends are wise enough to activate their friend's God-given potential. Nothing's more powerful in this story than watching Esther come into her own to watch God shape her and grow her and transform her into the queen, the leader and savior of her people, a proudly Jewish queen of Persia. And Mordecai didn't make that happen. Don't misunderstand me. God and Esther working in partnership made that happen. 
But Mordecai did what spiritual friends are called to do. He helped unlock his cousin's God-given leadership. He helped activate and unleash her God-given strengths and talents and potential. And sometimes when we're walking with someone in, in Christian community in this spiritual sorts of friendship, it takes someone else equipping us and showing us new possibilities for us to walk through the door that God is opening for us. It takes people praying for us, standing in the gap with us to, to empower us to, with courage, follow Jesus and all that he's inviting us into. And what I love about this story is that Mordecai gives his little speech and then he gets out of the way and he just rides shotgun as Esther starts to set the strategy and formulate and execute the plan to save God's people. They're like this tag team of, of mutual support and, and the older Mordecai is wise enough to kind of tag in and say, hey, it's your turn. Take over. He spoke into her, her life. He committed to be with her journey, there with her in her journey. He's prayed for her. He's fasted with her. Now it was time for him to see his, his friend blossom, to fly, to be the redeemer that God was raising her up to be. And really, it's this beautiful friendship. It's this bond that thwarts a holocaust, that saves a community, that changes an empire. And I want you to just, as we end, what prevents you from saying yes to this sort of costly community? We hear these stories, and it's like, oh, that's great. But there's these obstacles in the way. Either we're comfortable or complacent. We're, we're fearful of trusting someone. We're fearful of being vulnerable. We're fearful of, of being manipulated by someone else. And there's costs and there's risk, but it is God's grace that upholds us. And knits us together. And, and we hear that we can't hide. We can't skate by ourselves. We can't go solo. We can't expect to be these independent agents and think that there will be no consequence. God invites us into community. He, he shows his power through his community. He wants us to know you need the Lord and you need one another because I have called you and I have sent you for such a time as this. So consider taking the risk to opening your heart and your life to this sort of, of costly, real community with one another. And we're going to end our worship today uh, at the Lord's table, which is itself a communal act. We've been uh, supplementing our series together 
through uh, reading a devotional called What If Jesus Was Serious About the Church? And my favorite part so far as we've gone through this journey is uh, there's an entire section to remind us the importance of coming together at the Lord's table as the people of God. This is sort of this habitual act that reminds us what we've gotten ourselves into. And as we come to the table, we get these three instructions. One is to remember. We remember God's saving activity in the past. And we ask him to to bring it forward, to, to apply it in the presence, we look into the present. We look at what he did on the cross and we say, do that same saving work now. Break the power of sin. Break the power of evil. Break the power of death in our lives. It's also a moment where we come together and we celebrate all that God is doing and will be doing. But our third kind of Instruction from Scripture is to examine ourselves as we come. And we think that we read this so individually. Examine ourselves. Oh, let me search my heart and and make sure I'm coming with, with pure motives. And that's not bad, but that's not what Paul's referring to. He's saying, discern the body as you come. Realize that as we come to this table... We are all coming together to feast on the Lord's grace. To be rescued and to be made new. But also to be made one. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he was saying, hey, discern the body because they were coming separately to the table. The rich people were eating together. The poor people were eating together. The slaves were eating together. The free were eating together. All of the social divisions and the hostilities that existed in their culture were being replicated at the Lord's table. And he says, stop and examine yourselves and discern the body. We are all made one. Forged together as a new community by God's grace when we come to this table. And every time you come, realize, I'm making you new. I'm making you one. I'm filling you with my grace so that you might love one another and be God's love out in the community. So as we come together, realize that this is a communal act of faith. This is discerning the body. We eat of one loaf, which is the body of Christ. We drink from one cup, which is the shed blood that makes a new covenant of love between us and God. We eat individually, but it all comes from one source. And our destiny is to be one people in his love. Dear God, We thank you. We thank you. We thank you that you have saved us, that you have made us one, that you've brought us into community so that we might experience and see and channel your power and your love and your care to the world.
as we individually come to this table in faith, would we leave knit together as a faithful community? May we be bold enough to speak into one another's lives. May we be faithful enough to be in for one another's journeys. May we be humble enough to seek you in prayer on one another's behalf and wise enough to seek to activate these amazing brothers and sisters to all that God has called them to. Come to the table grateful. Come to the table rejoicing.